This is Waves, a podcast from APTA Michigan. I'm Andy Wicks. Physical therapists are highly trained clinicians when it comes to dealing with disorders of function and movement. We are not always so highly trained or confident, however, when it comes to dealing with the intangible side of patient care, that squishy, messy, human side of it. Dr. Kenneth Miller is a physical therapist and faculty member at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. Now, don't worry if you hear differently during the podcast, dear listener. Dr. Miller was on faculty at the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth when we recorded this episode. He spoke with me about the importance of the affective domain in clinical learning and how the physical therapy profession can do a better job of preparing its students for dealing with the realities of patient care. So my name is Dr. Kenneth Miller. I am a full-time faculty member at the University of North Texas Health Science Center in, in Fort Worth, Texas. And my role there is I teach pharmacology, I teach geriatrics. I also am involved in teaching some of the content in cardiopulmonary. Besides that, I also am involved in the clinical reasoning programming. And so that's my full-time role. I'm also a full-time student. Well, actually got to cut that. I'm a part-time student. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a part-time student at TWU. I'm in the PhD in physical therapy program, and that is in Dallas. All right. And you sound like you're from Texas. Just kidding. I know you're not. Yeah. <laughs> Originally, I hail from New York, 50 years in New York, and then moved to Texas. So just needed some warmer weather. Yeah. I was t- <laughs> sick of the cold weather, you know, from being in Michigan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The weather's like. My, my sister lives in Dallas, and we grew up in Minnesota. And as soon as she had the opportunity to get out of town, she did. Okay. <laughs> When you choose the weather you have, you're certainly tolerant of the extremes that you accept. When you are born into it, you don't like what you're born into. So if it was cold weather or hot weather, whatever you're born into, you don't, you never say you don't like it. <laughs> so I'm okay with a hundred degree summer weather. Oh, well, I'm glad you are. I, I could not, I could not. So let's talk about trauma-informed care, if, if, you, if you don't mind. That's where I kind of want to focus our, our attention a little bit. So sure. I think trauma-informed care, those are words that individually we understand what those are, but the concept of what trauma-informed care, while it's becoming maybe more well-known in healthcare and in mental health services, things like that, in physical therapy, it's maybe not as well-known. So maybe... Could you talk a little bit about what trauma-informed care in physical therapy means from your perspective? So I think my interest in trauma-informed care started back in looking at the experience of our students and looking at my history, 26 years of treating patients, and understanding that we are not holistic, even though we want to say we are in our care of our patients. And so working with our patients, I realized that we're not really holistic. And and what I mean by holistic is we're addressing physical limitations, functional limitations. So we've learned the ICF model in 2008 that became part of our practice when APTA adopted it. Now it's part of our everyday patient management model. 
And within that model, we do look at the beliefs of the patient themselves or a client themselves. And we look at the beliefs of their support system, which would be the environmental factors. And I think all that's really important because now we get a much better picture of what our patients needs are, their wants are, how they tick. But I think we still fall short. And that's where I think trauma-informed care is one piece of what we can add to our practice that will make us much more holistic and really develop the relationship that we're trying to develop with our patient and, and not knowing what we're missing. And so it's not in our discipline yet. I've, I've been doing much research over the last two years looking at trauma-informed care. And really the only locations that I'm finding it within the physical therapy profession has to do with chronic pain. And it has to do a little bit with pediatrics where they're talking about child abuse, where trauma is involved in that area. And then the third area I'm seeing it a little bit, and it's just getting started is in pelvic health, which also relates to chronic pain. And so when we look at trauma-informed care for those that have had traumatic experiences, sexual abuse or physical abuse, being able to understand that person's condition and empathize with that person that has had that history of trauma really helps us to develop a better relationship and create an environment that is safe. First of all, it has to be safe. It has to be welcoming. We have to meet the patient or the client where they are. And so the reason it started in, in pelvic health and in chronic pain was we realized that pain is so complex. And we have the biopsychosocial model that we use to look at pain along with some other models. We look at social determinants of health and we're starting to finally realize that our psychology professionals on the other side, looking at the psychosocial elements, not so much the bio, they've been working in trauma area for quite a while. And so if I were a social worker and you and I were having this conversation, it would be very different. If I were a psychologist, it would be very different. The fact that we're two therapists speaking from a psychological point of view, it's really very novel. And that's why I'm looking at researching this for my PhD, because I really think that there are many people that have had traumatic experiences that have had neurotags. If you want to look at it from a pain science lens where the body keeps the score. So these people have pain that can be related to a past trauma. There's the book, Body Keeps the Score Perfect. <laughs> so you have that book. Uh, there's the other book by Bruce Perry, the um, What's Happened to You. And if there's one takeaway that I would want for this, and I would love for this to be part of the broadcast, would be the question we all need to ask ourselves of our patients is what happened to you, not what's wrong with you. And I think that is critical for our patients in pediatrics, our patients in geriatrics, and everywhere in between. Because when people have behaviors, anxiety, or, or stress, or anger, a lot of times those things are more primitive responses related to a protective mechanism that comes back to some level of trauma. And I think the fact that many people just say, what's wrong with you? We blame the person. And again, it's back to shaming and back to guilt. And someone has chronic pain. He has to, we say it's in your head. And you say all of these things about things that are not true. 
rather than if we looked and say, what happened to you? And really try to understand the, the patient or client where they are. And that's what, what happened to you helps develop empathy and it helps develop that therapeutic alliance. So I don't know if that answers your question. I said quite a few things in that, in that statement, but trauma-informed care really is a way of approaching an individual in a way that is, you know, SAMHSA has, has developed resources from 2014 that are free on the website. You go to the SAMHSA website. And that's, I think that that really is a big piece of our practice that's missing. So my goal is to get that more involved in our practice. And I think that should be part of, of our, of, of what we do as therapists is, is incorporate that fact that people have had trauma in their background. You know, that could be bullying. It could be, you know, incivility in, at the workplace. You know, there's so many examples of, of what trauma is. It doesn't have to be uh, a very large amplitude of a lot of trauma at once. It could be a lot of microaggressions as well. So it could be either or it could be both. Everything you just said, Ken, was amazing. That was, <laughs> I wanted to just stand up and cheer. I work in a neuro rehab clinic mostly TBI, stroke and spinal cord as well, but we're getting a lot more post-concussion patients and the ones that we get are the post-concussion syndrome. So they're, they're, they're quite a ways down the road from their injury. And I'm finding that for the vast majority of those patients, the trauma that is involved in the incident, we've had abuse. We have had people who work in kind of violent workplaces. So working in homes for emotionally dysregulated people, behavioral health, things like that. And they get assaulted by the people they work with, like those, those kinds of things as well. And finding out also that there's more often than not a history of previous concussions, previous trauma, all this stuff like that, that seems to be informing how well they, how well or how well they don't respond to care and, and get better. And not paying attention to those things. If you ignore that and you simply try to treat what's in front of you, you're missing so much of, it's like trying to, trying to measure the size of an iceberg basically by what you can see above the water. You're, you're, you're just missing everything else. And so it's, it's making your treatment less effective at best and ineffective at worst. Yeah, so I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. So here's a question for you. Because you are a faculty member, you are someone who teaches students who are learning to become physical therapists. How do we teach students about being a trauma-informed clinician? So I think there's two, there's two takeaways that I would love for the audience listening to this to take away. Aside from asking the question of what happened to you, the two takeaways that I have is one is... And this I did in my, with my students. I made the course have an assignment that students had to take an ACEs Aware training. Wow. So there are many ACEs Aware trainings that are free. California is, it really leads the way in ACEs Aware training. So I had my students take that as part of my development and geriatrics course. Okay. So we had content related to pediatrics and development and, and moving through the whole lifespan. And so looking at either end of the lifespan, either elder abuse or child abuse, mm -hmm. I wanted them to understand about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences and uh, adverse life events. So I wanted them to have some of that background. So I'm, I, I found online the California ACEs Aware training 
And it was about two hours of training. Okay. And so that was one of the assignments. So that's something that I highly recommend is, is embedding an ACES aware training in the curriculum. Okay. And the other thing that I really think is important, some programs do this, but it's again, very, very rare. I think that all students and I think all faculty can hint should absolutely be taking mental health first aid hmm. started in Australia. And that's a training similar to, C to uh, you know, first aid, like CPR type first aid, but it has to do with mental health first aid of how to help people that are, are, are going through their mental health crises and really helping to learn how to help them in that crisis. Not that we're counselors. We're not learning to be counselors. That's not what our role is, but it's being able to identify when things happen and being able to know when to call who and, and get that person the type of help that they need. It's, it sounds like it's, that's it's the, triage. It's triaging out and being able to, to say, you know what, you need, you know, you need this or you, you may need that. It's not diagnosing or anything like that. It's really just being able to identify that, oh, someone is in crisis, but let's try to get them to the help that can help them best. And, and that's a um, formal program? Yeah. It started, in, it started out in Australia. Okay. A lot of health departments do that training for free. Okay. Or it's like minimal cost, like $25. Yeah, yeah. And then that training really is helpful. And they, and they have it set up for different ages. So you can do youth mental health, you can do adult mental health. So they have it set up for different, different populations. I think that's, you, you brought up a great point that we are not counselors, we're not psychologists, but anyone who's worked in a clinic, we've definitely had those moments where we seem like we're acting as one in, in lieu of a, a real counselor. A patient just opens up to us. We're privy to some pretty intimate private moments sometimes. So I think that regardless of the, the, the area of physical therapy you might be working, you're going to encounter these things. And, and yeah, you need to be prepared. Like you said, it's, we're not trying to diagnose and treat what, what's happening inside, you know, in terms of their mental and emotional health, but to be able to recognize exactly what you said, something is wrong and something needs to be addressed. And let's see if we can get you to the right resources. And I think it's great that those trainings are available. I was not aware of that. So I am definitely going to make notes of that. And I've, I'll find links for that and include them in the show notes. So they'll be attached to oh, this perfect. episode. Yeah, yeah. Those are the big things that I, like to me, those are like the low hanging fruit, things yeah. that have already been done that it's like, oh, that's just an, it's like the no brainer. Like <laughs> if I were the chair of a program, like one of the things that I would implement immediately as a chair would be have all faculty take the mental health first aid training uh -huh. and have, and have that done for the students during their orientation so that everyone is starting off on that point of taking away the stigma of mental health. Yeah. We know stress is a big part of PT school. We also know that many PT students in order to get to that point of being in PT school, have a lot of it gone through a lot of adversity and have yeah. grit and have resilience. But mental health is still an issue with, with depression, anxiety, test anxiety. And I, I just think that we can really serve our students much better if we were to say, everyone talk about mental health first aid and know that it is not take away that stigma. And then the ACE is aware is a lot of people aren't even aware of their own buttons. People wish, you know, oh, you have a short fuse. Like everyone, you know, the old days, you say, oh, you had a short fuse. Well, a lot of times that shirt fuses a protective mechanism for some trauma that person may have had. Yeah. 
And so ACEs is also a, a big part of it. Understanding, understanding that it's not an attack personally on you. It's, it's their response to their own feeling unsafe. Exactly. Oh man, that's, that's so, that's so interesting. I did an episode, a couple episodes with Dr. Nicole Piamonte. I don't know if you were aware of her. Oh yeah. Yeah. So she's big into the humanities and healthcare education, which, which is kind of what almost set me on this whole path initially. And she talked about how she works in the medical school at Creighton University and they bake humanities education kind of throughout the entire curriculum, which is, <laughs> I think I'm going to paraphrase it, but a way of kind of disguising that it's even there is by not making it a unique separate thing. Like here is our class on trauma-informed care because now it becomes a special thing, but instead putting it throughout the entire curriculum. So it's just becomes a natural part of everything that you're, that you're teaching. And I think that's, that sounds like the smarter way to do it because then you're, you're making it just, it's, it becomes one of the universal precautions. You foam in, you foam out and you talk about mental health. Yeah. That's, that's, it's funny you say that, but it, that's like, that's my grand vision. Like one of my big goals, like I retire and I will have achieved the goal is if we can treat, treat our students in a much more trauma-informed way. And, and really there are disciplines like social work that are looking at trauma-informed teaching. Yeah. You know, they have trauma-informed teaching. They have trauma-informed approach. And I, I think by modeling that in the classroom with the didactics, we then teach our students what that looks like for their practicals, what that looks like for their clinical experiences. And they end up graduating in a much better way of helping them, their clients, but also trauma-informed care and then learning resilience. All of that also helps to be protective against burnout. And that's another yeah. big thing in our discipline of people going into these clinics and moral injury. And this isn't what I thought I was getting into and that I, I don't like this. Yeah, And I, I think that being able to talk about these things and, and like I said, infuse it, keeping it as like an adjunct, like we just do that for six weeks here and there, that's not going to stick with anyone, but making it just part of what you do, I think is a, is a better way to go. So Ken, so I want to be the second author on whatever it is that you devise before <laughs> you retire to make this happen. Because I think that's, that's, I've, I've tried to do this with every student that's come into my clinic and the students that I work with in the classroom, in the laboratories and everything like that is, is try to communicate that the importance of it. And it's, it's, I found it tough simply because again, I'm in there, you know, one semester of their entire didactic portion of it. And while I hope I make a difference, I know I'm just one of the teachers that they have, but, and they're focusing on passing their practical exams and practicing their, their written exams and all this stuff. And so what I have to say, yeah, sure. It's important. And they recognize it's important, but it's not what's right in front of them, their needs that they need to get out. So yeah, I need to be able to, <laughs> to bake that in there. And, oh man, I'm so glad I talked to you because I was honestly, I was like, I don't even know how to even get started with this, but someone had to have been able to do this already. It was you. <laughs> so, well, thank you for that. I I'm also just getting started in it. I've other areas if to, to, that could be helpful. In my research, I've found that where students struggle in the clinic is not so much the cognitive piece and not as much the psychomotor piece. The, the biggest area of struggle that students have on their rotations is the affective domain. And it's the communication piece. It's the emotional piece. 
It's that self-regulation and their anxiety and that stress of being in that temporal environment now that you have a certain limited amount of time to do something that, mm -hmm. that didn't really exist so much in the classroom. And so I think having to learn about affective skills is really important. And I think our discipline can do a better job there. And so I started to develop affective domain simulations. And I'm doing that with a couple of colleagues. And, and so we're, we're, the three of us attended ELC in Atlanta, and that's where we actually met. And so we're now in the process of developing uh, pre-briefs and simulations that really are hitting the affective domain more so than the psychomotor or the tasks that PTs do. It's really looking more at, and not looking at the, the clinical reasoning specifically, it's really more looking at how did they handle the situation they were placed in mm -hmm. with an affective disruptor, you know, a patient that is not following the instructions or a patient that may not be able to, to carry out what they're asking, whether it's motivation or whatever the case is, cognition or hearing, and how do they handle that, that challenge of a, of a communication gap or some type of a learning gap or, or something. And so the, the feedback from the, we did the simulation last week with the students and it, it, the feedback was very positive. They feel like that really was helpful and they'd like to do more sims related to the affective domain. So it sounds like you're essentially trying to simulate real patients. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the long and the short of it is Andy, exactly. Like a real patient. Not, now it's funny because that that it's funny you say that because it's one of the comments that some of the students said to me last week after their simulation. Like, you guys are really good actors. Like, when I practice with my classmate, like they all know what I want and they just do it. Yeah. And he said, "You guys aren't doing that." Meaning, meaning the other actors. And I said, "Well, we're playing patients, right?" And they and they were like at an aha moment, like the light bulb went off. Like, oh, we oh, need to practice yeah. in a different way. I said, "Exactly." Yeah. <laughs> That's, I mean, and that's fantastic that you do that because these are the situations that, that throw off those students when they get, when they get into the clinic. Cause even, I think even with the best intentions, students can only simulate when students are practicing with students, they can only simulate so far. And, and then you start, like they said, getting used to each other and knowing kind of what's going to happen, but to really be able to throw a real patient, like someone who just is being behavioral and isn't going to do what you want to do, or they're only there because their doctor told them to be, and they don't want to be there. And I mean, these are, these are patients. And so how do you, how do you deal with that? That's fantastic. I love that idea. So if, if you can, can you, can you go into a little more detail about like what, what these, these simulations look like and how they work? So we did a literature review, my colleagues and I, so we started looking at research. Uh, the nursing discipline is much further ahead than we are in terms okay. of simulations. So in Axel, is really where you, the standards come from. So in Axel on that, and right now I'm drawing a blank, but it's I N A X. It's an, if you, if you Google simulation and in that'll come up. Okay. And so what we, what is important with, with doing a simulation is you want to simulate as, as close to real life as you can, understanding that it may not be real life, right? It's not, you're not inserting these things. You're not really doing these things. It's not really a knee joint. That was just operated on. It's not really a, a, a cabbage, but it, we're going to simulate that it's as close to real as we can get. And we get buy-in from the students because we create a fiction contract. 
And we also create a confidentiality agreement so that they don't give away what is happening in their experience to the next set of students that come in and already have an eye on what's going on because it ruins that simulation. And so they get information in a pre-brief. So it's a good way of communicating. They get a pre-brief, then you have the simulation, and then you have a debrief. And really, most of the debrief is a matter of them reflecting on the experience. It's, it's the faculty speak as little as possible, asking them is just some, some reflective questions of what do you think went well? What do you think you would do next time? What are your takeaways? So it's only a few specific questions. And then the students really reflect on, you know what, if I had to do this over again, this is, I would do this different. And, or I would do that. And I didn't think, I think that went really well. And so that's really what a simulation is, is, is coming up with a couple of objectives that are part of what the simulation is. So it, it can be psychomotor of you need to do this task. It can be affective. You know, our goal is for you to educate this person and, and really go over what their hip precautions are, or whatever the, the task is and, and see how that works. So within that experience, it also can be psycho, it could be cognitive where they have to do some decision-making. If it's an uh, ICU environment, they have to look at the, the monitors and look at and get and take the information they were given with lab work and, and, and being able to synthesize their, their hypothesis of what's going on and then be able to do their individualized assessment and then their own provided interventions and then reassess. So all of those elements are part of the simulation. The part that I like the most is just the fact that it's trying to mimic as close to real life as possible. And the students are made up front aware that this is a learning environment. This is where we make mistakes and this is, we learn from our mistakes. So we make it a very open environment, inclusive that, yeah, make the mistakes here. I'd rather you make it here and we can learn from it than to try to think that you got to do it perfect and then be upset. Yeah. And so growth mindset's a part of that as well. It, it's hard to apply the pressure of this is important and we need to learn from it, but not to make it, this is, you need to do it perfectly. I think it's a, it's a fine line to draw. And I think it's hard for students to maybe make that distinction where they see the pressure involved and all of a sudden they assume, <laughs> they assume they should have already mastered it when they're just learning it. And that's, and that's tough, yeah. I mean, you know, and it's, and it's hard to, to set that groundwork. And I think it's great that you do that to, to try to set up the environment of, we are here to make those mistakes. This is the, this is the safe space for it. This is the laboratory to practice. I wish that was a, a bigger part of of some of those simulation exercises, because I've been involved in programs or in, in, like in seminars in the program where I've been an adjunct, where they do a simulation of someone in an acute, you know, a, acute care hospital room. And, and it's great just sim simply because they have the ability to mimic the physical environment and they get some great actors, but they don't focus so much on that affective domain of it. It's more of just managing lines and paying attention to monitors and this and that and the yep. other. It's, it's very much of the, the nitty gritty but I would love for them to have those opportunities of, of paying more attention now to your patients all of a sudden becoming tearful. Like what is, all right, what do we do? All of a sudden things changed. How do we manage this? Something like that. It's so important to understand that simulation can be so many different things and can be infused. So what I did was a mi I would call it a mini simulation. The whole simulation was a half an hour, okay. five minute, they had a short assignment they had to read the night before, and then they had a five-minute pre-brief, a 15-minute simulation, and then a 10-minute debrief. Okay. And within that half an hour, the whole thing takes place, 
and then they're finished and then they have, they can have other reflective writings or other things. We didn't incorporate it and I didn't grade it purposely. I didn't want it to be a graded activity. Then they think my performance matters Yeah, yeah. in a different way. And I, I think for what, what we did, the, the overwhelming number of students that provided feedback found that it was very, very helpful and that. Yes, they had done others. They had done a different simulation in the ICU already. So this was actually their second simulation. But their first simulation was managing the tubes and the lines and mm -hmm. the, you know, the Foley bag and, you know, all of the other elements of what you see in the ICU, you got to move the oxygen line. Mm -hmm. they, had a, they were so concerned about that. A patient could be like sticking their tongue out and like making faces <laughs> or whatever. And they probably would be oblivious to it because they were so much focused on everything but the patient. Sure. With that experience. <laughs> and rightfully so, because they're so new. Mm -hmm. So it made me think about having our simulations on a scale of, you know, you know, if I had a, if I had to have a checkbox, like a, a checklist, like is this simulation primarily psychomotor, affective or cognitive? Like. Where does it fall in what domain or multiple domains yeah. are, are we focusing on? And then is this a low level, is this a low level simulation or is this going to be a high tech simulation based on the environment, based on the equipment, based on, is it a mannequin and, you know, is it going to be ECG monitoring and they have to be able to identify six PVCs in a minute? Nope, we got a problem. <laughs> or is it no tech where it's just relationship with the patient? Yeah. So. There's a lot that we can learn from our nursing colleagues to help make our simulations better and make the experience better and graduate better therapists. And you bring up a good point. And I want to make sure that this is clear that I don't think either of us are saying that we need to do away with or minimize those psychomotor or cognitive domain activities because they're incredibly important. You need to know that stuff. That's that is just as important a part of the job as, as the affective domain things that we're talking about. And I agree. I think when you got a, a, a brand new student who is shaking in their boots, looking at everything that's involved in an ICU hospital room. Yeah. Let's focus on one thing at a time here. Let's, let's, let's learn about patient handling and, and keeping everything safe and in the right thing and connected. <laughs> but I, yeah, I'm glad you brought up that point. Cause I, I don't want anyone to get a misconception from our conversation that those other areas are not equally important. Yeah. You know, safety, patient safety is paramount. Being able to monitor the patient, being able to make appropriate clinical decisions based on the information, all of these things are critical. I think the reason that I'm focusing on the affective domain at this point is, is just the fact that it's an area that we have not focused on in the past. And I think it's an area that we can, we can build up to be a little bit better than it is very much uh, and not not take away from the other areas. Yeah. And that, and I, I'm right there too. I think that this is an area that I, when I was a student, I didn't get, I don't think any really emphasis on this, in this aspect of care and only really in the last few years of being a clinician that it really started to kind of come to the forefront of my own attention and being like, wow, I, I had looked back and said, I hope I was acting this way towards my patients. I like to think I'm a good guy in doing this, but I'm sure that there were times when I was so focused on getting my objectives and my goals met that, you know, that I, I wasn't. And so I'm, I'm much more mindful of it now, I guess is what it comes down to. You know, when I look back at, at my 
when I went to PT school and along my career and I'm starting to get, well, I'm grayer than, than you saw me <laughs> on some pictures that you have had. But what I've noticed over my career is the fact that we've made a lot of changes in our curriculum and we're moving away from certain things that were, were a cornerstone of practice when I first started, like the mm -hmm. modalities are much yeah, yeah. less. And when I graduated, we were very, very much into a, a biomechanical system for pain. And there was a pain generator and, mm -hmm. you know, we were very much into the Maitland approach and the Paris approach. When I graduated, I know now we're moving more towards the eclectic and moving, well, we've been eclectic, but more towards the pain science piece of it and the, 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 the neural matrix and the modulation of pain and it's an output, all of these things are now different and Understanding like in my background, I know I didn't have certain things that I'm now trying to make a better experience for our students. And, yeah. and the simulation is one, one component of that, being able to go over mindfulness with them and other, other things to help them learn how to re better regulate themselves, I think is, is really important. Yeah. That's huge. And I, yeah, just going to, going back to a point, I think you touched on a little bit earlier, just the, the stresses that the PT students are under regardless of, of everything else, like it's, and especially within the last two years that PT school is hard on a good day. And I think there was not any attention paid at least overtly in the past to students' mental health and well-being. If there was, I mean, I should, I should take that back. I'm sure it was, attention was paid, but it was probably on a scale and level that was not sufficient to the need. I'll say that. And I think that is becoming less common in that I think it's becoming uh, more accepted that these students are going to need a different level or a different kind of support potentially from the faculty that that maybe wasn't something that we got 10, 20, 30 years ago. I agree. Looking at my research and I've been trying to find trauma-informed care in our discipline, I've been trying to find evidence of stress, depression, anxiety, and all of that. Like what are the prevalence of these things in our DPT students? It's only since 2017 that the oh. conversation started and 2019, you know, we started with more of the resilience and the grit. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really within the last five years that it's, that there's any real attention that research is important in these areas. I think prior to that, if somebody had issues you know, it would be brought up to the, to the student performance committee and, and maybe there would be external resources and referral out, you know, get help that they needed through the universities that the school, that the PT programs are built, are embedded in. But now it really is looking at, well, what is the actual test anxiety of our PT students? What is the actual grit level of our PT students? And yeah. can we affect that? Can we make that different? And the preliminary research is showing that yes, resilience programs work. Hmm. Yes, PT students have resilience, but it's not, um, it's not something that for, and this is really, really new research. It's, it hasn't been connected to what it looks like within the first five years of graduation. Yeah. And how, what are the, what are the predictors of student burnout within or early graduate burnout? That's all brand new. And I think COVID had a big role to play in it. I think student debt is a big factor in it. I think the supply and demand changes that are happening in our profession are another stressor our students have. You know, so many PT programs are opening. 
And I think that's another, another challenge that our students yeah. have that things that we certainly didn't have COVID earlier. And I know it, not in my career, we almost had SARS in 2003, but that got squashed. Yeah. Thank goodness. But I, so I do think we're looking at things differently now. And I think that there's a lot of work to be done, but I think that at least now we're looking to do that work. You talk about, we're looking at possibly seeing correlations or looking for correlations between resilience and grit levels and first five-year success as a clinician, which I think is, that's makes complete sense. I think it would be further than looking at, do you see different levels of patient outcomes with those clinicians? Do you going back to the, you know, how they were, how they were educated? Do you see how they could become, I mean, this is, we're maybe stretching the, the, the thread a little too far, but looking at becoming better clinical instructors to, to teach the next generation of students and seeing how that kind of perpetuates itself. I think that's, that's another kind of soapbox that I like to get on is that there's a lot of emphasis on the clinical instruction, the clinical rotation piece of it, but there's not a lot of emphasis placed on making good clinical instructors. And, and there's, there's an assumption there. And I think that's a, an unfair assumption. I did a very scientific and rigorously constructed Twitter poll not too long ago, asking if people had had a clinical instructor experience that made them cry. And over two thirds of the people who responded said yes. And to me, that's wrong. That's, it's not, it shouldn't be that way. Our discipline models itself after the medical disciplines. Yep. And as well, we started through the medical disciplines, if you look at our history. And I think the fact that that hierarchy that's set up between residents and, and fellows and residents and like how many attending and, and all of these things, the, the high stress levels and and the, the always being on um, performing and having to perform perfectly, I, I just think that that is unfair. And I don't think that you have to have such a negative experience to the point of crying to really learn something and, and to be good at what you do. I, I, I don't I don't agree with that. I think bullying is bullying. And I think that being able to self-regulate and being able to have a conversation with somebody else that is open is probably more effective than having to deal with all of the emotions that happen with the the poor situation and yeah. uh, yes being able to think under stress is important but that's we don't have to intentionally put someone through stress that they don't need to be put through <laughs> exactly exactly and it doesn't need to be the well this is what my experience was like as a student so this is what they're gonna get like yes you know i i am so against the it's the rite of passage that i went through it you need to go through it yeah. I, that is so against my brain that's 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 I disagree with with that line of thinking. I've I've had a number of students that are excellent clinicians, and I made sure that they had a very positive learning environment, and they catch things all the time, DVTs and other things in the home home health environment, and they didn't have such a negative um, experience where they were always under stress, and yeah. they don't have to have that. When I was in school, so I went to PT school at University of Minnesota, go Golden Gophers. And that PT program is embedded within the medical school there at Minnesota. And so we took a couple of classes with medical school students. 
And one of them was like a medical physiology course, I remember. And it was a you know, big auditorium and it's all the med students in whatever class and the 50 PT students, and then a handful of other like PhD students, whatever. And on the first day, the instructor came in and, and said, I don't think he addressed anyone but the med students, which was a, whole, a, a different topic. But anyway, he said, for the med students here, we will be awarding letters of commendation to the top five students in the class. And, and of course, all the med students are like writing stuff down and, you know, getting down to business. And I was thinking like, I remember specifically our director telling us on like our first week of school was you all made it here. Now the goal is we're all going to get you graduated here. We're going to work together. Like there was no competition. It was a a supportive environment and it was such a complete opposite to the, to what this medical school instructor presented to us. And I was like, this is just, this doesn't seem healthy to me, but that's that's, that's just the way I feel like it's been, you know, since since penicillin was invented. You know, I think that that mindset really lends to why we have a, a poor healthcare system. Honestly, I think the fact that we have a system that people aren't open to communicate with each other. People aren't uh, open to share their experiences and, and admit to their mistakes. Yeah. And I think there's a big piece of the legal part of if I admit a mistake, I get sued. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a component to that. But I really do think that therapists and physicians and all and the whole healthcare team, you know, work better. And that that's that comes back to team steps, you know, looking at how we help each other. We're all each other's safety net. And I think that is a big I think it's a problem when it's it's that we, we push so hard for the top few to excel and we wanna rank everyone and put people in a hierarchy. I, I think that's a problem. There's a great book out, and I forgot who the author is. It's called "Why Hospitals Should Fly." It's an older <laughs> book, but it really it really compares the environment in a hospital, ED or OR, with with that of a cockpit for an airplane. And they talk about how the pilot's in control, and like no one questions the pilot, and how they had to change that in the aviation industry, and they improve their safety because they have checklists. And that people are allowed to question and they're allowed to ask clarifying questions where that's still an issue in some places in the ED or in the, um, in the OR, it's like, do what I tell you and don't question me. There still has some of that and still a residual. It looks like it's why hospitals should fly the ultimate flight plan to patient safety and quality care by John Nance. Yeah. That's the that. book. I'll link to it as well. Cool. Ken, it sounds like we're just going to, we, we're going to change the world. Sounds like it's what we're going to do. <laughs> well, we could talk about changing the world. It's just, <laughs> does anyone listen? That's a good, good point. Dr. Kenneth Miller is a faculty member at the Medical University of South Carolina and a passionate advocate for making students better clinicians. Waves is a production of APTA Michigan. Today's episode was hosted and produced by me, Andy Wicks. You can find Waves wherever you get your podcasts or by going to www.aptami.org slash podcasts. We are on social media at aptamiwaves. Drop us a line and say hi. Thank you for listening, and may all your documentation always be done on time.